Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women and author of the Amazon bestseller, You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich. And this is The Wallet. The Wallet is here to help you make better financial decisions by talking honestly about money. I'll be sharing my best tips, inspiring you to take charge of your financial futures and talking to an array of awesome guests from all walks of life, employees, freelancers, entrepreneurs and money experts. As awareness of the climate crisis grows, many of us are making lifestyle changes to be more sustainable, shopping locally, switching to green energy providers, or committing to fly less. But where we choose to invest our money can also have a huge impact on combating climate change. Research from Make My Money Matter has shown that moving towards more sustainable funds can have many times more impact in reducing your carbon footprint than giving a flying and becoming vegan combined. Joining me today is Alice Ross, Deputy News Editor for the Financial Times and author of the new book, Investing to Save the Planet, How Your Money Can Make a Difference. Her mission is to highlight the action that every investor at any level can take to build a greener future. In this episode, Alice gives an introduction to sustainable investing. So what does it mean when we talk about green or sustainable investing? We break down some of the terminology and jargon used in the industry and discuss the tools available to help avoid greenwashing. We also take a look at what's next for the green economy as governments look to build back better after the COVID-19 pandemic and how portfolios can be diversified to invest with impact. Remember, the value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. And also, always do your research. And note that we discussed in this podcast is not a personal recommendation for any particular investment. I also wanted to let you know that we are not financial advisors. So the articles, the information made available on Vespot.com and in this podcast are provided just for educational purposes and do not constitute financial advice. So make sure you consult with an independent financial advisor for advice on your specific circumstances. Thank you. Hi, Alice. Hi. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well. Good to see you. I've read your book, Investing to Save the Planet. I think it's the perfect time to publish this, this type of book, but we were talking about maybe writing a book during lockdown and also publishing a book during lockdown. Having published my first book, I think it was actually quite a difficult time and I still managed to meet my community and do, do a little party and everything. So how do you feel about the, the, the book and, and are you happy to see it you know, out there in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously I'm happy to see it out there. It is a really weird time to be publishing a book because, you know, I suppose I would have liked to have a little party or something or just <laughs> celebrate with friends and family or something. And obviously that hasn't been possible because we're you know, still in lockdown here. But, you know, there's a lot going on on social media and things like that. So I, I feel like I can still chat to people about it. And that's nice. And, you know, people have been reading a lot during lockdown as well. I think book sales haven't really been hurting in general. So, so that's, that's nice that people still want to read lots of things. 
yeah and and you should all read it uh and we'll do a little giveaway on on, on Vespod. so make sure you come to, to our instagram so when you're not writing books you're actually the deputy news editor for the financial times you've been writing a lot about money saving the planet but can you tell us a little bit more about your your background and what led you to your current role and we'll talk maybe about the book later So I started at the FT actually in 2008, right before, I think it was April 2008. So right before everything really kicked off with the financial <laughs> Interesting <crisis>. times. <laughs> yeah. And that was on the personal finance desk. So, you know, obviously writing a lot about what people should or shouldn't be doing in terms of selling or basically sort of telling people not to sell the whole time. It was like, don't sell, don't sell. And which, you know, would have been quite good advice because, you know, as we all know, you shouldn't sort of sell when things are already plunging and you should you shouldn't buy high either but that was my sort of first experience of dealing with financial market chaos while also trying to write about it and then um did various different roles at the ft i was in frankfurt for a while as the frankfurt bureau chief writing about german banks i was in the states for a little while i uh, edited the ft wealth magazine which was more aimed at at least millionaires you know people with like family offices and things like that so sort of much more high level <laughs> end of things. But that, I mean, actually it was when I had that job that I got the idea for this book because I was talking to a lot of, um, well, A, very quite rich people with a lot of money to invest and B, younger people, often like younger members of families that had a lot of money. And they were all very interested in the environment and they were all talking about the sort of unusual things that they were doing with their money. And that that was the sort of first thing that gave me some hope that there were people out there investing in quite cool things to do with climate change and not just everything being horribly depressing and feeling that there was nothing you could do about it. I, I guess that led you to uh, to start your, your research and, and write the book. When was that? 2019, you decided, you know, it was a good yeah. time to start thinking about uh, about that? Yeah, it was. So it was the summer last year and I'd been sort of stressed anyway about climate change and there was a lot of bad news at the time the amazon rainforest was on fire and there were all these reports coming out and i was just i was really starting to get to me you know in that sort of anxious way like just feeling really stressed about it and then coincidentally my colleague at the ft who was the money editor at that time claire barrett asked if i could write a front page money piece for some time i think it was like she, with four weeks notice or something but she really said you can suggest anything that you think is interesting you know i'm sure we'd be happy to read it which was very nice of her and i i thought well can i do something on climate change investment solutions because i didn't feel like i'd really read enough about that and it was really interesting because it had started out thinking about what the really rich people are doing about it and of course they can afford to take more risk and things like that but because i was tailoring it towards the money readership of the ft which is you know people with money to invest but not millionaires or anything some of them are i'm sure but you know it's not you know it's aimed at sort of more normal level of wealth and so then i started looking at all of the practical things that you could do as an investor sort of at any level and so then i wrote the money front and that was only like well it was a 2000 word piece which is quite quite a lot of words, I suppose, but then looked at turning it into a book, which was 50,000 words of yeah. <laughs> in-depth ideas and, you know, did a lot of research for it, chatted to so many interesting people. I interviewed Al Gore, for example, which was really cool. It was a really interesting journey doing the book and ended up finishing it as we were discussing right in the middle of lockdown one which was kind of interesting <laughs> what, what i love about the book is it's of course very well researched and it's also independent so you know i've read lots of research from 
you know, many, yeah, investment platforms, investment funds, uh, maybe also, you know, views from, you know, fund managers and also the industry reports around sustainability. And it can all be like really complex and everyone wants to sell their own funds, their own ideas. So you focused maybe a little bit more on, on climate action. And this is really for individual investors. So I think you just give people the, you know, the tools and it's a really good book to just navigate, navigate the industry, know what works, what doesn't work. We'll talk about greenwashing also later. But I wanted to start this podcast by just asking you to maybe give us a, a brief overview about, you know, what is green sustainable investing and how does this relate to ESG objectives? Right. So ESG is the sort of the big buzzword in this area right now, and it stands for environmental social governance. And so you hear a lot about ESG principles being applied to various investments or actual ESG funds. Climate change funds, that's not even an officially recognized term for one thing, but any fund that takes the environment into account are going to be part of the ESG universe, but not necessarily the other way around. So not all ESG funds have companies in them that care about the environment because they might be in there because they're because of the S or the G in ESG. So they might be in there because they've got really good sort of social practices or they've got really great governance and they're not necessarily environmental funds. And I think this is one of the most confusing things when you start wanting to invest in ESG because you might be coming at it from say a climate change angle and then you might be really confused to find that the fund that you bought has BP as a top 10 holding. So it's stuff like that and understanding how the fund management industry labels stuff and what you understand by it. And if once you know how you define it and what you want, you can go and find what it is you're looking for. But at the moment, there's just a lot of confusion around, around the terms, which I have tried to explain in the book. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you give a few examples, but I think interests are not necessarily aligned and, and values. And we see that maybe in more in, in pension funds where you think your money is going somewhere and because this is like a sustainable portfolio and you start researching the funds and you're right, maybe they're ESG, but actually, you know, they cover more two aspects and, and not necessarily the, you know, the environmental practices. What do you think transformed sustainable investing from something that was maybe quite niche 20 years ago to something that's now, if you want to invest, everybody's going to talk about sustainable investments. And I think for the, for the public, for the general public, this is quite hard to get. So why do you think this has just exploded? I think it is just the massive awareness that we have now of climate change, even though obviously, even when I was growing up, we knew about climate change. We, you know, we knew about it in the 90s and the noughties, but it really just in the past few years, it's become so on people's radar that we really don't have that much time to act. You know, I think the Paris Agreement was such a big thing where, you know, we agreed that the world just had to cut its emissions by 2050. You know, it had to make sure that global warming was only rising 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. And that's such a, that's a sort of a firm goal and a firm target. And you can just see that trying to meet that target is going to create so much change across societies and companies and government regulations, that that is, you know, making companies realize that they really have to adapt to climate change. And, you know, with all of the awareness around climate change, equally investors and consumers are worried about it, are thinking about it constantly, and are starting to, you know, not just, I think, you know, a few years ago, 
an awareness of climate change might have made you change stuff in your personal life, like, you know, trying to go with a green energy provider, maybe, or fly less or eat less meat or the eating less meat thing is a lot more recent actually as well. But, you know, it might've been one of those things. And now I think there's just a much greater awareness that you also need to think about where your money is going, because that could be supporting things that you don't want to support, or it could be going into, you know, areas that need development and that could actually help combat climate change. And do you think more recently, I mean, given, you know, the pandemic and, uh, and COVID-19, do you think that that changed the way we think also about sustainable investing? I mean, I see, I see the pandemic accelerating change in lots of, you know, industries and, and thinking. So do you think that also has an impact on sustainable investing? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, interestingly, right at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone was talking about the S in ESG finally becoming... Yeah sort of trendy because yeah. you, know, that's all, you know we forgot about this one completely yeah <laughs> you know like companies that would be like randomly firing workers or you know not not treating people very well and people were getting quite outraged by that and saying that they should have made more efforts to keep their staff on and things like that and so companies that were in ESG funds for the S reason because they have really great social practices were much better thought of and I think people just became more aware of that as, as a sort of a good way to run a company as well And I think just more generally, like there's just been so much talk of building back better and governments across the world have been talking about doing this. Like there's been such a sharp shock to the global economy this year. And everyone knew that there had to be pretty major changes made in order to cut emissions. So it sort of seems like a good moment to seize that moment. Like, you know, we have to do things differently now partly because economies have been so damaged and governments need to come up with plans to create more jobs. So they are looking to the green economy to do that. So in, in that sense, it's been a silver lining, I guess, of the pandemic that, that it's actually making people think more about how to boost the green economy. Yeah. So now maybe when, when we start thinking about investing in you know, ESG and, and sustainability, I think there's a big question about returns. And there's maybe a misconception that you know, investing with impact equals lower returns. But actually, you're publishing findings from Arabesque Asset Management, I think, and, and the, the report discovered that you know, 80% of the studies found companies with stronger ESG practices at stronger performing share prices. So I'm not asking you to tell me, you know, will I make more money if I invest in, <laughs> in ESG? But what do you think is the correlation between share prices and, and investing with, with impact? So I think historically, there's been concern about ESG funds in terms of traditional portfolio theory or traditional investment theory, where you want to spread your risk across as many sectors and companies as possible. And that's always what you're sort of advised to do. So ESG has been seen as potentially limiting the kinds of companies that you can invest in. And that's usually seen as, as riskier. But I mean, actually, ESG is becoming so much more pervasive across all companies. You know, all companies are starting to think about ESG considerations. You know, there are moves afoot for all companies to disclose their climate risk, for example, to disclose their emissions, things like this, that it's not, it's not really niche anymore. And especially with climate change, it's really hard to talk about past performance in terms of how things might go. You know, this is always this really standard disclaimer on any investment fund that you buy. It's always like past performance is no indication to future returns. And then they go on about how brilliant their past performance was. And it's like, right, okay, so you're kind of saying that it is an indication. But I think particularly with, with climate change, there's so much unknown about climate change risks that it really is hard to say anything about past performance and future performance. But what everyone does agree is that 
climate change risk is real, we need to get better at measuring it. And companies that are ahead of the curve are in a stronger position at the moment in terms of where the world is going on this. You can find statistics that that back up the argument that ESG doesn't damage performance. There was a report, for example, from the London Stock Exchange in 2019, looking at the move towards green finance. And they were arguing that the green economy was outperforming the conventional economy. I think they had pointed to the FTSE environmental opportunities all share index had risen 41.1% in the previous five years. And that was against a 33.4% rise in the FTSE global all cap index. And then there was a report also in 2019 from the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, that said that they had found no conclusive evidence that sustainable funds consistently out or underperform conventional funds. So I think maybe you can't prove outperformance at the moment, but I think you know it does seem that the literature is saying that there's no reason to think that you would underperform because you get an ESG fund. Yeah, and I think I mean I think it makes it makes sense to go and invest in companies that you know will will follow or will have maybe an you know sustainable strategy, long term. For me, it, it really makes sense. But if we look at companies that you know are not changing their practices, what do you think are the risks they're they're facing? And and I mean you as a shareholder will be exposed to these companies, so will be exposed to these risks. So how can we measure risks for for the for the individuals? So the whole issue of how to measure climate change risk is it's a very new area and they haven't regulators and governments and in the investment universe hasn't come up with a, a standard way of yeah. measuring climate risk. And this is something that everyone is working on right now. So it's sort of at the foothills of trying to work all of this out. You know, you can you can make observations and generalizations and you can sort of go with what seems intuitively obvious, but in terms of real proper risk measurements and metrics in the way that we're used to in the financial industry. We don't have that yet for climate yeah. risk. You know, that said, it's not exactly finger in the air stuff either. You know, if you look at the oil and gas companies, they have significant issues. You know, they have this issue of stranded assets, which is this idea that as and when regulation stops them using all of the oil and gas that they already have, that it will be basically be a write-off, like they won't be able to use that. So that will really damage the value of the company. So, you know, you have to be aware of this issue if you're investing in oil and gas companies. And then there's also this, this fear that, that some people have warned about, about a really sharp, sudden regulatory shock where we could see governments suddenly in the next couple of years, maybe say, oh my God, we haven't done enough on climate change. We need to make the regulations stronger. And then just that they'll suddenly push through some regulation that will leave companies that haven't been preparing in advance. Yeah you know, caught short and that that could also be at risk. So I think checking that the companies that you're invested in are taking it seriously and have made plans and are sort of ahead of the curve, hopefully on this, will mean that they're better prepared as and when the regulation does kick in properly. Yeah, I think standardization is is quite a tricky one. And as you say, it works on measuring risk, but also, I mean, as an individual investor, and I've said it before, but for me, when I try to move some of my investment into something maybe greener or with a bigger impact, I find it really hard to also compare funds, to understand the definition, to understand the jargon. So this can result in my expectation not being aligned with, uh, you know, whoever invests my money for you or the funds I put my money in. And, and your, in your book, there's an example where someone invests money in one company, but then discovers that, you know, the strategy is not what he had in mind and he pulled this money out. And I think that's a big, big risk for people who invest in pensions and think, you know, wow, I can't trust my provider. So what can we do to understand 
the terms a bit better, the, the jargon. Uh, so really to learn about investing like sustainably. And do you think there's going to be more done by the industry to also add maybe this is the way we should invest and, and it's, it's going to work for everyone? And will this also avoid uh, maybe greenwashing? Because I think that's a really important thing in the, in the industry. Yeah. So everyone's really worried about greenwashing at the moment because, you know, greenwashing is this term from whitewashing, which is basically, you know, this idea that you're pretending that your green credentials are better than they are. Yeah. You're like labeling a fund ESG, even if it hasn't really made much of an effort to think about ESG considerations. Like it has to make some, a bit of an effort, but maybe not much. And because there's no yeah. there rules around this, fund managers can go a bit but that's, that's so so shocking to be honest i was reading that in your book like some funds call themselves almost almost green and when you look into it it's not you know what's on the on yeah. the can so but i mean you know sometimes sometimes that might be not because the fund manager is trying to swindle you yeah. it might be because people are using these esg terms differently so you know one one classic example you mentioned um the guy i spoke to for the book who discovered that his esg fund had bp as a top 10 holding and he was really shocked but i then sort of looked into that for him and i thought well how did this happen so i sort of followed this trail of you know all of the involved in not like to UBS to MSCI and all of these people have been involved in some point at working out a, a definition and deciding what companies could and couldn't go in the fund and so what I traced it back to was ultimately MSCI taking a sort of a best-in-class approach at times to what it called ESG so that doesn't mean that you have to be some company that's actively doing brilliant things for the environment it just means that you have to be maybe better than your peers, not as bad as the other companies in your sector. And on that measure, BP isn't, it's arguable, but you know, a lot of people think it isn't the worst oil and gas company because you know, it has set itself now as of this year, a zero emissions target for 2050. You know, it is investing, albeit not enough, but it is investing in various renewable energy and things like that sort of companies. So it is doing more. And so that's why it does sometimes end up in ESG funds. And you might be okay with that. It's not that there's necessarily a right or wrong, just because an ESG fund holds BP doesn't mean that it's a bad fund. It just, it's doing something different. And it's obviously a fund that's happy to invest in companies that are in transition. As we say, you know, companies that are trying to overhaul themselves and move from being more polluting to less polluting. And, you know, there's also a strong argument that says that that is worth supporting as an investor. So understanding the ways that the terms are being used and what it is that you want to get out of climate change investing will help some of these sort of confusions to go away. I mean, that said, you were also asking, what is the industry doing? There are moves afoot to standardize this and to have better definitions and try to avoid greenwashing. The EU, for example, from March next year, March 2021, is introducing this you know, proper definition of green and sustainable funds and funds that label themselves in that way do have to tick certain boxes. So that's going to be great. And the UK has also said that it's going to do something similar to that. So you know, things are definitely moving in the right direction. But for now it does mean that you probably have to do more homework as, as an investor, but, but it's not, once you start looking at it, it's, you know, you can work out what to do. It's not, it's not always completely confusing. No, oh, thank you. So actually I wanted to, to come to that. So as individual investors, what are the 
best practical steps we can actually take when it comes to uh, sustainable investing? Should we, should we start maybe with what we already have? So reviewing our pensions, reviewing our investments, and then maybe we'll, we'll talk about the, the different strategies because I think it's interesting to talk about diversifying versus engaging. Uh, but maybe first is, is yeah, where, where do we actually get started with that? Yeah, I would say definitely like reviewing your existing funds or whatever it is you've got at the moment. Like, is that in funds that you're happy with? Is it not? You know, you might either have not thought about ESG, so it's in totally mainstream companies, and you can always check the top 10 holdings of your fund. So you just Google it online, basically get the fund fact sheet. And that will tell you the top 10 companies that the fund is invested in. And you can work out if you're happy with that or not. But, you know, even if it is an ESG fund and then you're surprised by the top 10 companies, that might also not be a reason to to ditch the fund for the reasons that we've discussed. So that would be the first thing. I mean, I think, you know, I think definitely get a financial advisor, but be a bit careful about some financial advisors. I find that some of them can be quite old school. They might still be from that school of thought that thinks that ESG is a bit wacky and you know, they'll say, oh, well, yeah, okay, we can have that as a strategy. Like, you know, you can have 10% of your portfolio yeah. in or something. Or, or they might, you know, I have heard them recently trot out the, the argument that it, it is going to harm your returns as if that's something that they know. And that's, it's just not, as we've discussed, that's not true to state that it's going to harm your returns. So be careful about the financial advice you pick and try and get one that does say that they're aware of ESG or that ideally that they sort of specialize in it or that, that it's a big part of what they do. And then you can go through things one by one. But again, one of the first questions then that you need to ask yourself is, do I want to divest or do I want to engage? So financial advisors say that the first question that they usually have, if someone comes to them and says, okay, I want to do ESG, I'm going for it. The first thing they say is, I want to sell my oil and gas stocks. That's what they've decided they need to do as sort of a first step so that like they want to divest. And that it's just interesting once you look into divestment, that's not necessarily the right way that everyone should be going in because you know there are interesting arguments in favor of not divesting, which are that if you stay as an engaged shareholder within a company, even a small shareholder, you know, even you know, like you or me as a retail shareholder in a fund, we don't have any clout with the board in the way that a BlackRock does. But there are these shareholder action groups that will connect you together and you can file motions that have to be you know heard and have to be voted on for, you know for companies to change their climate change practices and so you know you can have real power as a small shareholder in a large company and you know you might want to think about whether that's a road that you want to go down i mean some people will just feel like i just don't want to be have any profits on my personal investments coming from an oil and gas company and that's fine but it's a valid question and, you know, people's opinions will differ. Yeah. You can do that via share action, I think. And you can, share action, yeah. yeah. And then once, you know, once you've reviewed your, your holdings, you've decided, I mean, you, you clearly need a, a strategy. What are the key climate change solutions that people are, are investing in? I know, I mean, you're not going to give me like investment recommendation, but where do you see, you know, there's a bit of action and where, where are people investing their money at the moment? So I sort of divided it in the book into four main themes. So there's um, energy, what people are doing in the energy world. And that can include, obviously, renewable energy, wind and solar. We've known about that for a long time. And the advantage of that is that you 
often, you know, these renewable energy companies will already be large and listed companies. So if you're an investor that doesn't want to take too much risk, that might be a good option for you. With, with all of the solutions that are out there, as I try to explain in the book, you need to also consider your personal risk profile as an investor. So it doesn't really matter how exciting an idea is sometimes. If it's like at a venture capital level, you know, it hasn't listed on the stock market, it's still testing its idea out. You can only really get involved in that if you're an investor with a lot of money with a high risk appetite. So no matter how exciting you think some solutions are, some of them just won't be available to you because of your risk appetite. But that's fine because there are lots of solutions that that are available to you. So yeah, so energy is one of one of the big themes. Another one which is closely linked to energy is um, transport. There's a lot of work going into batteries. As we all know, the electric car revolution is coming in this country even sooner than previously thought. I think Boris Johnson was just saying last week that it's, you know, now from 2030 instead of 2035, we're all going to be, you know, less than a decade to sort of really shift towards what will be quite a massive change because there's also the infrastructure of that. So everyone will be driving around and they'll need to charge their cars. So there are companies that are starting up to offer those kind of things. So infrastructure companies as well. So there's all of these companies sort of connected to these big changes happening in society that you can that you can invest in. Then another big theme I look at is food. This is, of course, something that we we've all heard a lot about with the move away from meat. We've seen some you know amazing success stories in this area. The obvious one is probably Beyond Meat, which have you um, tried it? I've tried I, it. I tried it. Is it not good? I'm a vegetarian though. I should. Okay. I should. So, but I haven't tried Beyond Meat, I don't think. I'm not a fan. I mean, I, I eat meat once in a while, but, you know, I was expecting like a juicy steak <laughs> and it wasn't. But but it's still a very good company. I agree with you. And, you know, it's I think we, we're getting there. You know, the, the product wasn't amazing for me. <laughs> well, well, that's interesting because on that, I mean, so, so Beyond Meat, you know, it had its IPO last year and it went crazy in terms of the valuation. And so... The private equity guys that had invested in it before it went to market made so much money. One person, I think, told the FT that they made a hundred times their initial investment. So that's mad. I mean, you know, obviously that kind of thing isn't available to to every sort of investor on the street. But you know, this is an idea of some of the kinds of money that's been being made in these ideas. Then actually the share price specifically with Beyond Meat actually got overvalued. And short sellers started targeting it. And that is something to be aware of because there is sometimes a lot of hype around these kind of companies that just because it's a great idea, as with any investment, doesn't mean that the valuation is correct right now. So there could be too many people interested in investing in it and you need to be careful of whether you're buying things at the right moment. But, you know, ideally, that's why most retail investors are investing through a fund So they're spreading their risk and they're letting the fund manager decide the best time to buy and sell things. But to your point about how a Beyond Meat burger tastes, one of the most interesting things that I did in the course of researching the book was I went to, um, there's a a, a sort of a female founder themed angel investor club in London. And it's sort of women investing in women. So in order to consider a, a startup company that wants capital, they have to be founded by at least one, one woman. And then most of the people that are going to invest in them are also women. So it's a nice idea. And so I went and I heard this presentation by, by a woman who had invented a company that instead of creating an alternative to meat, they were actually growing the meat in 
laboratories. It's called cell-based meat. I mean, I know much more about it now than I did then. I'd never heard of it before. I was like, whoa, this is completely futuristic and crazy. But they they extract some cells from a living animal, but then they clone it or sort of grow it inside a laboratory. So then you would actually be eating meat, kind of, I guess. I don't know how it would be defined. But the idea is that it would taste exactly like a meat burger because it would be meat. But, you know, A, no animals are harmed in the process and B, it's all much more environmentally friendly because you don't have the animals roaming around in the fields and farting and stuff. Yeah, there's a very good episode, Netflix episode called, I mean, they have this series called Explained and there's one about meat and beyond meat and recreating meat and that's like super interesting. Oh yeah, I haven't seen that. I should, I should look at that. But, you know, so, so, and there are loads of startups trying to do this at the moment, but they're all, mostly they're really sort of low level or right at the beginning of their sort of journey. As early stage, yeah. Early yeah. stage. So the, that's just taking a lot of risk. I mean, angel investing in particular, there's so many really exciting ideas out there, but angel investing is one of those areas that's basically like gambling. Yeah. I mean, I feel it's, I've been asked, you know, angel investing, should women do it? I mean, of course, you know, we all, I mean, I've been investing in a few companies, but it's so risky. So that should be such like a, you know, small portion of your, of your portfolio, because you're not too sure about getting any money back actually from from your angel, angel investments. That sort of brings us to the final theme that I had which is energy efficiency in the circular economy, because that's actually an area which is sort of less sexy than the other areas. It's like, doesn't sound as cool or as wacky, like, you know, recycling. But A, it's an area that really, really needs focus because so many carbon emissions could be cut just by companies, you know, managing their energy and their efficiency better. And B, the companies that are in this space tend to be these, you know, companies that have been around for a long time. They'll be large listed you know, you could have like Microsoft or something, or, you, you know, you've got much bigger companies that haven't just IPO'd that are much easier to rely on. And so that is a really good option if you are the kind of investor that's a bit scared about, you know, putting your money into some of these new companies at an earlier level. So, yeah. So once we, we've looked at, you know, maybe the, the main categories, we have a view, we have a strategy. Now we, we need to look at assets. So what can we actually put in our, you know, investments portfolio? So, I'm thinking, you know, equities, green bonds, funds, how, I mean, how do you, do you get started? I think green bonds is quite, I mean, it's quite an interesting one. Uh, so the government has announced that they will, they will actually issue green guilds. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? We did a post on Vespod and everybody went crazy. They're like, yeah, wow, I want to invest in that. Uh, when is it available? Is it available for everyone? So that was quite interesting to see a conversation around that. Mm, yeah, I think I think too often in the conversation about, or I think for a lot of investors, you just think of equity first, and that's the main thing that you're thinking about, like what shares am I going to invest in? You maybe sort of neglect to think about the other asset classes that are available. And and yeah, green bonds is an area that some investors I've spoken to even think it's more important than equities in terms of climate change solutions, because arguably if you're buying or selling shares, particularly in listed companies, you're sort of shifting shifting things around, you're just passing bits of paper from one investor to another. But if you're investing in a bond, you're basically giving a company money for something specific that it wants to do. And so if it's a green bond, it will be for a company to do something like green infrastructure or you know, a specific sort of um, energy efficiency project that you're specifically funding with that money. So A, that's great because you can sort of track where your money is going a little bit better. And B, for the larger bond investors, they can actually have clout to, to say to a company, we're not going to refinance your bond 
unless you you know do more on disclosing your climate risk and there's a sort of an immediacy to that that because the company needs the, the bond money in the way that it doesn't need it doesn't mind so much in the immediate term how the share price is doing is important but it's not it's not that sort of urgency so yeah the green bond market is really is quite an important area when it comes to this and across other asset classes you can you can basically have green anything you can have green private equity green venture capital but it's not it's not as developed i mean i think the market is richest in equities and bonds for sure and probably more more solutions do need are needed in in other areas but it's getting up yeah so i guess it's you know building your balanced portfolio of shares, bonds, depending on, on your, your risk appetite. But yeah, of course, I mean, everything can be green in uh, in your portfolio. But now do you see, I mean, what are for you the, the dangers? Uh, or what are the things we need to be aware of when we, when it comes to sustainable investing, apart from maybe greenwashing? Mm. I mean, yeah, greenwashing would be, would be the big thing. I think in terms of the performance debate that we've, we've been discussing, I think you should be aware that, you know, in general, if you have an ESG portfolio, you are going to be less exposed probably to, say, oil and gas stocks. And so you are going to be possibly in the short term, you might see your performance not not do as well if the oil price is rising. So you have to be aware of that, I think. And I think sort of worries about that are what, what can make some investors give them pause for thought if because you could look at you know the performance over the past year and if the oil price has you know risen loads ESG funds might not do as well in comparison but it's you know that would be a very short term comparison and you have to really think about why you're why you're investing and what your your horizon is you know if you are investing for the next 20 years or so you know as a lot of us are if not more you know we might be investing for retirement or something like that then you know these short term price fluctuations shouldn't bother you too much particularly if you if you know that the longer term case is is strong so you know the performance danger the greenwashing danger i think just really making sure that you know what kind of sustainable investing you're trying to do so that we don't have these confusions that we've discussed and that i talk about in the book where people where people don't understand that that the fund that they've bought is trying to do something differently to what they think And so I think really, really making sure that you understand the terms being used and, and what the funds you're investing in are trying to achieve. Yeah, no, thank you. I think it, it's very useful. Maybe one last practical question, and that was more on, on, on pension. I know many people who have workplace pension, they auto-enroll, their money tend to be invested in default funds. So they don't always have an option to, to go green with, with their pension. What type of, of, of action can, can they take uh, with, with their pensions and maybe talking to their pension providers, reviewing you know, how the trustees are advising like pension funds and stuff like that? Definitely, yeah. There's a lot of movement in the pension fund world on ESG, which is really interesting. I mean, most people are put into the default fund by workplace scheme because they don't select another option, but hopefully you will have other options apart from the default fund. The danger of being in the default fund is that most people, like over 90% of people, never then move out of the default fund once they've yeah. gone in. You can usually, but people don't. So, you know, think about that. It's usually a fairly simple step to take. There should be an ESG fund on the menu. If it's not the kind of fund that you agree with, you know, having sort of got your tools of what you feel an ESG fund should be, yeah, you can definitely write to your company because your company is the one that will have the clout to sort of change their pension fund provider. So if you feel that the options aren't good enough and if everyone is saying we really want 
more ESG, better ESG options, the company is going to have to listen to its employees. Happily, the pension fund world is really looking at this. So there's a lot of discussion about ESG being the default fund option, so yeah. that default funds should be ESG funds. And pension funds are looking at this. At the moment, I think not that many are, but it's expected to change really rapidly in, in the next couple of years. So so that's something else where change is also coming from the top. But in, yeah, in the meantime, you can definitely write to your company, check what you've got, check that you're happy with it, and you know maybe even start a little shareholder action type group at your company and and try and push for you know for better options if you don't feel that the options are good. Yeah, can I just ask you, you know, what's next now for sustainable investing? What do you think is going to happen over the next few years? Well, you know, there's there's good stuff on the horizon, as discussed. There's regulation coming in um, that will hopefully stop greenwashing, which would be really great. There's also one thing that's going to be really helpful is that there's also regulation hopefully going to come in about forcing companies to disclose their climate risks, because that will be really helpful to investors when they're trying to just when they're trying to decide if a company you know, is, is, as we discussed earlier, if it really is taking climate change seriously and if it's going to adapt well. And we've seen some really encouraging stuff on that recently. So the UK has just said that it's going to look at making that mandatory. And then also Joe Biden in the US, quite amazingly in a way, has said that he is also going to look at doing this, making it mandatory for, for companies to disclose their climate risk. I mean, what a change. So, so that's two really great things that are going to happen. And, you know, as discussed, pension funds, moving the default fund to an ESG fund will be huge. I mean, there's so much money in pensions. That will be a huge game changer. So yeah, so this really is the way that that things are going. And, and then we're also going to see some of these smaller companies with these great ideas. They, they are going to mature. They are going to IPO. They are going to bring these things to market. And that will, you know, hopefully start changing the way that we're consuming things and we're behaving. Um, and that will be that will be great as well. And then that will really expand the investment universe as well for the kind of investors that only want to invest in listed companies or larger companies. So hopefully there's going to be a lot, even more options in the next few years in terms of sustainable investing. No, that's that's really exciting. And I think for, for you know, people who are already investing money, but also for newbie investors who are not too sure, you can have a, a, re, a like real impact with your money. So maybe now is the time to, to get started. So yeah, lots of exciting things. Alice, thank you so much. I have some uh, quick fire questions. I always ask these five questions to our guests. What is your top financial goal? Oh my goodness. I think it is to really make sure that everything... I'm doing with my portfolio is is aligned. It was quite a funny experience writing the book. As I think as a financial journalist, you have to be a bit careful, like that you're not, well, A, that you're not giving investment advice and B, that you're not writing about anything that you're invested in. So I've always been really cautious about that, actually. But to the, to the point that I think I could probably be less cautious and I'm just going to really look into what all of the rules around disclosure are and then, and then start taking some of my own advice, I think. What's the best financial decision you've ever made? So, I mean, I have to say it was getting on the property ladder quite early, but I feel like it's not really fair to call that a financial decision. I feel like that's a financial opportunity that I have because I, I appreciate that for so many people, getting on the property ladder is much harder now than it was, say, when I did it. So, you know, I think that's maybe <laughs> maybe not fair, but, you know, it has it has been a good decision with the London property market being what it is, another big Thing that happened was that I moved to the US at one point with, with my job and I actually bought a house there 
And then when I came back here and sold that house, the US dollar had risen 25% against the pound during that time. So that was amazing. (laughs) Also, that is not something that I could recommend because you should definitely not be playing currency market. That is for sure gambling anyway, and definitely shouldn't be playing it with your property decisions. But that said, it was maybe, maybe again, more of a financial opportunity than a financial decision. Great. And the worst financial decision you've ever made? Well... I think it was, it turned out to have been a bad decision, but I I think it was taking advantage of the Pearson share scheme that we had at the Financial Times when we, um, when we were still owned by Pearson, you could save um, some of your money every month and it would, you know, go into buying Pearson shares. And, you know, most of us did it because it seemed like a great, a great opportunity, but then we got sold and, and then since then the Pearson share price has really plunged quite dramatically. I never sold my shares and they're now worth less than half of what they were, which is a bit of a lesson in spreading your risk. You know, that was probably my top, probably still is the top thing that I have holdings in just this one company. And I only did it because my company offered it quite good terms. And it was, yeah, I mean, that was really like putting too much risk into one thing. So yeah, that was not good. So yeah, that's a good lesson about not putting all your eggs in, uh, in one basket. What is financial independence for you? I think it's, as it says, feeling that I'm in control of my own money and not not depending on someone else, you know, feeling that I've got my own investments and things are in my name. I think that's important for me. You know, that is how I have things set up. So so that's good. And, it, you know, it feels good to feel that, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't like the idea of someone else saying what I could and couldn't spend or I think, you know, I mean, everyone does it differently, of course, but for me, that's quite important. And what are the things you spend the most money on? Maybe a bit different during oh, lockdown. <laughs> I don't, well, exactly. I don't spend anything right now. I definitely have like, happily I've remained employed. So I have built up some savings during this time because there's been nothing to spend any money on. I think usually when I, when I spend, I mean, apart from the usual sort of household bill stuff, I, I probably spend, I probably spend quite a bit on just, on just socializing and I, what I really want to do right now is just go to a really nice restaurant, which, um, <laughs> which <laughs> I know. <laughs> in London, we can do that from next week, right? From, from the second of. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Alice. Can you now tell me just, you know, what, what are you working on? What's next for you? And if we can support you in, in, in any way, apart from, of course, buying your book, investing to save the planet. Yeah. Well, I hope it, I hope it would be helpful if people do want to buy it. I've just started this new role at the FT as the deputy news editor. And it's such a fascinating time because, you know, we're doing various things at the moment, but, you know, we're just setting up this climate change hub. We've appointed a climate change editor for the first time. And so that's really great, you know, and I think we're, we're taking the view that, you know, obviously we're taking the view that climate change is real and something that companies really have to think about. So I'm expecting that I'm going to be following this story really closely over the months and years to come. And that's really exciting, actually, to feel that I'm going to be right there watching it all unfold. Really exciting. Where can we find you? Of course, the FT. Uh, are you on Twitter, maybe? I'm on Twitter, yeah. So it's at Alice E.M. Ross. <laughs> yeah. And then LinkedIn as well. But yeah, Twitter's probably the best place. I'm always on Twitter. Alice, thank you so much uh, for taking the time today. And I hope to meet you anytime soon <laughs> and discuss more about you know, sustainability and what, what you're working on. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. 
Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on Vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at Vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.